the Bible is truly remarkable. I'm amazed every time that I stop and I read and spend time meditating on God's Word. When I submit myself to the authority of God's Word, it does not ever cease to amaze me how I see my life change, how I see my attitude change. I see my love for Jesus grow. I see my desire to share the gospel grow. I see transformation as I yield myself to God's word, and he changes from the inside out. And what's so remarkable to me is that no matter how much we study God's word, we will never exhaust it. We will never come to a place of having arrived. We will never say, oh, I already know that one. Oh, I already got that one, Jesus. I'm good. It'll never happen. There's always more to learn from God's Word. And the reason is that we don't read God's Word for information. We read God's Word for transformation, which only happens through relationship with God the Father, through the Son, through His indwelling Spirit in us. So as we read His Word, God is revealing Himself to us. And so our goal is to know God. So when we gather together on a Friday morning at the Emirates Park Zoo, we do so because we want to see our God revealed. We want to know Him. And as we're continuing in our teaching series through the book of Joshua, today will be in a fairly long section, much like we were last week, chapters 15 through 19. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. We'll be reading selected passages. We can't read all five chapters today, but as you're turning there, I'll I'll remind you of the context here in the book of Joshua, that everything, and I do mean everything in the book of Joshua, points to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better and final Joshua, who has defeated the enemy who has secured a land for his people where we will enjoy our God forever. That is what the book of Joshua is pointing to, that Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, through the gospel, that Jesus has conquered sin and death and Satan. And so Jesus has won the victory. We don't win any victories. Our victorious king, Jesus, he's victorious. And because of his victory, we are in Christ And because of that, we now, in our daily lives, can walk in victory. We can. Not in our own strength, but through the power of His Spirit, as we do it, following Him through His Word, doing it together in community, then we can see victory in our lives because of Christ and what He has done. We looked last week and how this all points to Jesus in Joshua chapter 10 through 14. And we saw how the Israelites were fighting for seven years to finally defeat the enemy in Canaan and take hold of the land that God had promised to them. We also saw how God commanded His people to defeat the enemy and to distribute the lands. And so once all of the major strongholds had fallen, once every major city had been defeated, Joshua was told to partition to allocate the land to the various tribes of Israel. And so we saw that last week. Chapters 13 through 19 is one unit with one theme. 
And it is how God is revealing how they're to divide the land among the 12 tribes of Israel. Each one is getting their, their portion of this promised land. And each tribe was then to settle into their particular region and completely oust the enemy from there and experience God's holy presence with no enemies around. Now, we did also see last week that the Israelites failed. They were unable to completely drive out the Canaanites, and that's because of sin. The reality that only Jesus can do that, and Jesus did do that. All in Joshua points to Jesus alone has defeated the enemy. Israelites attempted and failed, but the ultimate Joshua, Jesus, did not. And so now we're picking up with chapters 15 through 19 today in this same unit in these seven chapters. But before going to 15, let's get the context for chapter 13, where this whole section begins. So we'll be in Joshua 13, the second half of verse 6 and verse 7. And the, the words are on the screens. And God says to Joshua, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and a half tribe of Manasseh. So again, all the major cities are defeated. There are still some in the land, but God said, that's okay. Divide it, apportion it by all the tribes. So here God is promising a final victory. He's promising it's going to happen. And so he instructs Joshua, allot the land to Israel for an inheritance. Key word there, a lot of an inheritance. It says, as I have commanded you, now therefore divide this land for an inheritance. And so God is repeating this same word over and over as we'll see even more this morning. God using very specific language. He is calling this land that he's promised to his people an inheritance. In chapter 13, we saw last week that the tribe of Reuben, of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh were given land on the east side of the Jordan River, as, Mo- as Moses promised to them earlier. Now let's keep reading in Joshua 13, verse 32, and finish this chapter. These are the inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho. And so this is a summary statement. These are the inheritances to these two and a half tribes that were on the east side of the Jordan River. So the first land allotment happened actually under Moses, not Joshua, before the cross of Jordan under Joshua's leadership. So the first land allotment was to these two and a half tribes on the east side. Now, let's fast forward to chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to see the second land allotment to the tribes under Joshua. Chapter 14, 1 through 5. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers, houses of the tribes of the people of Israel, gave them to inherit. The inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to two and a half tribes beyond the Jordan. But to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. 
and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell with their pasture lands for the livestock and their, and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord God commanded Moses. They allotted the land. And so here we see, beginning this second allotment with chapter 14, to the tribes that are on the now west side that have crossed over into the promised land. Now, it's important to note here that it says that it was divided by lot. And so God did not want anyone to accuse Joshua of having favoritism or having chosen who is going to live in the land. God himself was allotting the land. He was showing his sovereignty through the casting of the lots. Now, it says that the tribe of Levi did not get an inheritance. Now, we'll look at that more next week and the significance of that in chapters 20 and 21 describe the Levites and their, their Levitical cities. But what it does say here in this introduction to this section is that the Levites would not get a land as an inheritance. They would not have a land to pass down from generation to generation. The Levites were set apart for service in the tabernacle and then in the, in the temple. And so they would not have a specific land that would be theirs to inherit. Moses was the tribe of Levi, as was his brother Aaron. And the priesthood came out of the, the lineage of Aaron, which was the tribe of Levi. Again, we'll talk about that in detail next week. Now, the second half of chapter 14, we looked at that last week and how the inheritance was given to a man named Caleb, who is in the tribe, in, in the area of Judah. And so what you have there is Caleb's faithfulness to subdue the enemy and have no apathy for God. And so that was an amazing chapter to look at last week. And so the rest of chapter 14 covers that. Chapter 15 then describes the rest of the tribe of Judah and how they got their land. Now, the first 12 verses describe the geographical borders, and the rest of the chapter describe all of the major cities that were in Judah. And so Judah got the largest piece of land, got most cities, and, and the best part of the land. And so the lion's share of the land, half of all the south, half of the promised land was Judah's. And so that's how God allocated it by the casting of lots. So the tribe of Joseph was turned into actually two. Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so each one of them got their land allotment. Chapter 16 and 17 describe that. So the two most prominent heirs in the land was the tribe of Judah, was half almost, all the south. And Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. So it's no surprise that Judah got the most significant part of the land. And the next biggest one was the people of Joseph. His two sons, the tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim, had very large portions in the north and even across the Jordan on the east side. And so chapter 16 and 17 describe how you have most of the north is Ephraim and Manasseh and the south is Judah. Now chapter 16 verse 4, just kind of get a sense of what's going on here. It says the people of Joseph, which was Manasseh and Ephraim, received their inheritance. And that's described in great detail throughout the rest of the next two chapters. We don't have time to read all of it, but on your own time, I encourage you to do so this week. Now, 
what you're seeing here is two main tribes controlling all of the land with Judah and the people of Joseph. Let's read chapter 18 and see what happened with the other tribe. Chapter 18, let's read verses 4 through 6. Let's, let's pick it up there. So it says, Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. Then shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in in seven divisions and bring the descriptions here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. Let's jump down to verses 9 and 10 in the same chapter. So the men went out and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. They came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel to each his portion. So what you're seeing here is the Israelites are camping at Shiloh, a very important place because that would be where the tabernacle would be kept. And there were still seven tribes because there were three that were on the east side of of the Jordan. And then you had Judah and the people of Joseph on the west. And there were still seven tribes that had not been given much or any land for that matter. But most of it was already taken up with, with, with Joseph's clans and with Judah. And so then Joshua sends these seven leaders of of these tribes, and they go and they survey and they map out the seven lands that are remaining, and then Joshua casts lots, and each of those tribes then get their, much smaller, but still get their portion, their inheritance of the land. And chapters 18 and 19 then describe how those seven tribes, where their borders were and where their land would be. And they're called to then go and settle that land by driving out the Canaanites. Now, let's jump down to chapter 19 as we kind of get a summary of this whole very large body of material describing on this land allotment. Joshua 19. Let's pick it up at the end with verse 49 and 50. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, The people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath-Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. And so you see here that even Joshua, the leader, received his inheritance. He was given the inheritance, but, but note, he was given his last. Everyone else got their portion. And after everyone was settled, God had revealed by Lot who would live where in the land where the tribes would be. Joshua then at the very end was given his portion in the region of Ephraim. Now we live in an age where by and large leaders want to go first. Where most leaders over most nations are self-absorbed. And most leaders want the best portion for themselves, and the people can get whatever is left over. And yet what you have with Joshua is that the people 
go first. And then he went last and got what was left, and he was thankful for it. What you're seeing here is tremendous leadership, servant leadership, humble leadership, trusting in God leadership, not asserting himself leadership. I look around this room, and quite honestly, I see a room full of leaders. God has amassed an amazing collection of leadership in this faith family. And may all of us, in whatever area God has entrusted us to lead, may we do so like Joshua, who went last, who was humble. A lot to be said there, but when we look at these multiple chapters and look at the land being divided, and we're, we're doing so this morning by very much a very large sweep because it would take very long to read all of these verses. What, what can kind of happen is you can, if we're all honest, I'm sure it's not just me, we can kind of think to ourselves, well, that's interesting. It's interesting to know that the lands were divided among the various tribes. And if you have a Bible atlas or maps in your Bible, you're probably looking for where all the lands were, and by all means do that, and it's interesting to understand that. But maybe you're thinking, so what? Why does that matter to me? I could look up a Bible atlas online or at home. I didn't need to come to worship gathering to talk about where people were living, you know, on the map. That's, that's, that doesn't impact me today. How is that supposed to help me as I follow Jesus this week or as I raise my children or as I face my job or I've just moved here and my head is spinning? And I know that's some of you. I met you this morning and last week. And maybe you're wondering, okay, I, don't, I need to know what is God revealing to me from his word from these multiple chapters of the land being distributed, these inheritances to his people. We can't get lost in the historical details and then forget that God is speaking to us. He is revealing who He is and is revealing His plan for us and how He's accomplishing His redemptive purposes and is revealing it even through the division of the inheritances to the nation of Israel some 3,400 years ago. Let's read the last verse in chapter 19, which is a summary of the previous seven chapters. Summarized in the land allotment, let's read 1951 and begin to see how indeed God is speaking to us this morning. These are the inheritances that Eleazar, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers, houses of the tribes of the people of Israel, distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. Once again, you see that same key word repeated over and over. It's a mantra and it's repeated because we have to hear it. We can't miss it. He says it was uninheritances. So the inheritances were given. The inheritances were apportioned. This word keeps being repeated over and over. And so it says here that the inheritance was given by Lot. Again, God is sovereign. God oversaw this. And it says that they were gathered at Shiloh, which again, remember what Shiloh is. That was the place the tabernacle would remain. That was the central place 
of worship until King David came and built the temple. Well, actually, his son is the one that finally built it, Solomon. But it was under David's leadership that the Ark of the Covenant was moved into Jerusalem. But that was much later. For hundreds of years, Shiloh was the center of worship. And so it was at Shiloh where the tabernacle would remain. Here it's called the Tent of Meeting. But that's referring to tabernacle, which represented the very presence of God. God living right there. God dwelling. God abiding with His people. Which is why it says that the tribes, they were all gathered at Shiloh before the Lord. In His presence at the entrance of the Tent of Meeting. And so they're doing what they're doing in the presence of God. And they're doing what? They're dividing the land. And so if we begin to connect these dots, what we're seeing here in this very large text, in these several chapters, what it's revealing is that God is at work. He's at work doing what? Defeating the enemy. Ousting the enemy. He's at work doing that. And He's also at work giving gifts to His children. He's giving His children inheritances. All the while, they're enjoying His presence. So He's defeating the enemy while giving gifts, while His people have the joy of being close to Him. So let me give you the main idea of this large section, and then we're going to think about how it applies to us today. So the main idea from the section, the primary truth here is that God has a glorious inheritance planned for His people. That's what we're seeing in chapters 13 through 19. Really the whole book of Joshua as a whole, but in these chapters in particular, what we're seeing here is that God has a glorious inheritance that's planned for His people. And that's what the book of Joshua is about. When, when you read about the lands being divided, and if you go on your time and read it, it talks about borders and to the sea and to this river and up to here and all the specifics of where all the borders were. What can happen is we can think, oh, this is about real estate. This is about investment property. This is about them having a home. God gave them a land. No, it's not. It's not about the land. It's not about the property. It's not about investment. It has nothing to do with just acquiring real estate. There is something that God is revealing here that is far greater and that is far more wonderful and that is far more glorious and that is eternal than just some land that's in modern-day Israel that also goes into modern-day Syria and Jordan and Palestine. It's far more than just that physical piece of land. The point of this discussion on the land allotments it's that God has a glorious inheritance planned for His people. God didn't have to call it inheritance. He could have just called it the land. But God in His wisdom chose to use the word inheritance to describe this land. Because that word is full of meaning. We don't have time today But that word inheritance is the theme that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's a major theme that is woven throughout the whole tapestry 
that helps tie the scriptures into one theme that points to Jesus. There are many of these. Kingdom of God is another example of that. Covenant is an example of that, a major theme. Inheritance is another example that is woven throughout the scriptures that points to Jesus. Let me give you the significance of having an inheritance. Number one, significance of inheritance. Number one is that you are a child of God. Because we have an inheritance, what that means is that you and I, I'm a son, and you are a daughter of God. And so much like today, in the ancient world, a son would receive his inheritance from his father after his father died. No one else got the inheritance, not slaves, not friends, no, no, sons. When the father died, the son received the inheritance. And so by God speaking of this land as an inheritance, he's making a statement. He's saying something about who the Israelites are. He's saying, you are my beloved sons and daughters, and I'm giving you this gift. This inheritance. And so the land, all of this discussion of inheritance in the land is pointing to relationship. The land was primarily about relationship. Relationship with God. When the Israelites were languishing, suffering, dying in slavery, and God raises up Moses, to liberate them, to redeem them from slavery. And he goes to the evil Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Remember the words in chapter 4, verse 22, that God uses, he tells Pharaoh, he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, you shall tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Listen, he says, Israel is my Son, let my son go that he may serve me. So he says, let my son go, release him from slavery, because I want to give him a land where he can then enjoy me, and we can be a family. We can enjoy this relationship that he can serve me, worship me. And so redemption is speaking about relationship. This redemption is about a father and son and father-daughter relationship that is glorious. And so the land points something greater than itself. The land, this inheritance shows that, number one, you are a child of God. You see, when you look at the land here in Joshua, it's all pointing to Jesus. Like we're talking about, everything is fulfilled in points to Christ. Having a personal relationship with God through Christ. You see, right here in Joshua, the land was the avenue. The land was the means for the people to display God's glory to the nations. By defeating the enemy, by acquiring the land, they were proving there is a God in heaven and He's more powerful than the Canaanites, more powerful than the Egyptians. Our God is greater. Our God is more powerful. He is more wise. He is the one true God. So He was giving them the land to display His glory through them so that they could abide in the land and then enjoy God's presence right there in the land. And then Jesus comes and Jesus says, Abide in Me. 
Jesus doesn't say abide in the land. He's saying everything about the land and abiding in the land is pointing to me. So Jesus says, abide in me. I am the goal. I am the prize. I am the inheritance. I am living water. I am the bread of life. I alone can satisfy you. You can have God's presence only through me. And I will give you my spirit. And so we don't abide in the promised land. We abide in Jesus. The fulfillment of everything the land was meant to be. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you are a child of God. You are a son. You are a daughter of the king. And your father loves you. He knows what you're going through this morning. He knows when you're down. He knows your fears. He knows your struggles. He knows your temptations. He knows your challenges. He knows your anxiety. He's your father. He's your dad. He loves you. He cares. And he's giving you an inheritance because you belong to him. This is a gift to his children. But number two, so inheritance, number one, means you're a child of God. Number two, inheritance means that you're an heir of God. Inheritance is what you inherit. Inheritance means that you are an heir of God. You are very real, literal, not just ethereal, real, literal heir of God. And again, this theme runs throughout the scriptures. I'll just read to you a small portion of a section that we read earlier in the worship gathering. Our our brother Tim read from Romans chapter 8, 9 through 17. I'll read you just a small section of that in Romans. It says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Did you hear that? You are a fellow heir with Christ. I mean, can we just stop and just let that sink in? The very real inheritance that God the Father has for His Son, Jesus is the same inheritance that he has for you. You don't get the leftovers. You don't get the scraps. The full inheritance that God has for Jesus, you're a co-heir with Jesus himself, the Son of God. Yes, we're not the Son of God. We're adopted into his family, but we're, we're grafted in. We're adopted. You belong to the Father and the same blessing, same inheritance that he has for Jesus is the same blessings that he has in store for you. You are loved. You have this remarkable inheritance waiting for you. You are an heir of God. And our Father is rich. Our Father is not poor. The inheritance you're going to get, you're going to be so wealthy. What is God rich in? He's rich in glory. He's rich in wisdom. He's rich in power. He's rich in mercy. And he lavishes that. He gives it to us as a gift, as his sons who are heirs with his son, the king, Jesus. 
as an heir. You have all the rights and all the privileges and all the power as an heir and as a son and daughter of God. You are. You have all the power. You have the spirit of God. You can be victorious. You have the rights and the privileges because you are an heir. This should be exciting to us. This this should just be so overwhelming and exciting to us that so many times we get so wrapped up in the things of this world and we think that our life is boring. Brother and sister, if your life is boring, you didn't wake up. Your life ought not be boring. You are co-heir of Christ. He wants you to have life to the fullest. He wants you to have a life where you're walking in victory. Have a life where you're making disciples. Where you're experiencing his presence. Where you're displaying his glory. We don't want you to come and just sit and listen to me go on on a Friday morning. However amazing or horrible you might think the preaching is. We don't want you to come and just sit. This faith family is not about spectators. We're about making disciples. We're about glorifying God by making and developing disciples. And every one of us needs to be engaged. Because it's exciting. Living for Jesus is truly remarkable. You are an heir of God. And that gives your life eternal value. But with being a child of God and being an heir of God, there also comes a responsibility. So number three, having an inheritance means that you have a responsibility before God. And so this inheritance given to the Israelites, one, was validating you are my children. Second, validating You're an heir with God. But thirdly, you also have a responsibility before God. The Israelites had a responsibility to obey God. They had to be responsible to truly trust Him in the face of the enemy and truly treasure God so that then that would fuel their obedience. As we saw last week, they were apathetic and they did not treasure and trust God. And so therefore, they were not fully obedient They settled for partial victory when God had the whole thing for them. But they needed to take it by trusting Him. And so we have a responsibility to represent God. Remember, the whole point of the conquest of the promised land was about displaying God's glory, not about the land. It it points to something much greater than the land, being a light to the nations and showing that there is God in Israel. And so God had a plan to defeat the enemy, give them a land so that they could then enjoy his presence and represent him to the nations. And so you and I, we have been redeemed for a reason. We have received God's mercy for a mission. You weren't redeemed just so you can come sit and listen to someone preach or sing some songs. Not why you're redeemed. You did not receive God's mercy to just enjoy it for yourself. You have a responsibility as a child of God, as a co-heir with Christ. You have a responsibility to represent God to those in your world. 
And so how do you represent God to your children? Fathers and mothers. How do you represent God to your children? Husbands and wives. How do we represent God to our spouse? How are you representing God to your neighbors and co-workers who don't have this joy? Who aren't children of God? who are not heirs of God, who don't know forgiveness, have not tasted redemption, don't have God's spirit, are lost. How do you represent God to them? What about in our faith family? How are you representing God in our own church? Because our God serves. He came and served us, and we are called to serve one another. We're called to serve the church and also serve the world. And if you're here and you are not actively engaged in serving, if you come just to enjoy but you don't partake of serving, you are missing out. You are missing on the joy of experiencing the pleasure of God as you fulfill what God has made you to, and you can be so fruitful if you will say, Jesus, I trust you and I love you and I want to serve in my faith family. Serving others. You see, our lives should be such that we represent the love and the forgiveness and the kindness and the wisdom and the purity of our God. Our lives should reflect that because we have a responsibility as a child and as an heir of God. But along with being his child and being an heir and having this responsibility to represent him, number four, as we close, significance of inheritance is that you are treasured by God. You are his treasure. If you weren't his treasure, why would he send his only son to die on the cross You are treasured by God. And I don't know how many of you are dreamers in here. Don't raise your hand. But I don't know how many of you are just, you're dreamers, and you trust God for what he's going to give to you. I want to read to you out of 1 Corinthians 2.9. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I don't care what your dreams are or how wild your imagination is, or how many blessings you know God has for you, your imagination can't even begin to even imagine, it says, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Our God has a glorious inheritance planned for His children. And He had that for the Israelites, and He has it for His people today, sitting in this room. But don't forget, inheritance. In order to receive your inheritance, someone first had to die. You don't get your inheritance until your father dies or your aunt or your grandmother, whoever it was, someone has to die before the inheritance is distributed. So this, in Joshua, this discussion of inheritance is a foreshadowing, a pointing to the reality that one day Jesus would die. 
so that we could be reconciled to the Father and then God could give us the blessings, the inheritance. And ultimately, the meaning of the land is fulfilled at the very end in Revelation when God's people will be resurrected, glorified, wearing white robes signifying purity and integrity. And we will live forever on the ultimate promised land, the new heaven, the new earth. And we will enjoy not only each other with no sin, but we'll enjoy our Savior. We'll enjoy God, which is what His plan has been from the beginning. He is victorious. We have a glorious inheritance. May we walk in victory today. Pray with Our loving Father, we are honored that you would speak to us, that you would save us, that you would give us your word to guide us, that you would send your son to die for us, and you would send your spirit to dwell in us, that you would give us his glorious inheritance, and our minds can't even begin to imagine the blessings you have in store for us. And we trust you with it. Help us. Help us this day to represent you well. Help us to live for your glory, not our own. Help us to be thankful for this inheritance. And may it shape how we think and how we speak and how we live. For we want to be a church that displays your glory to Abu Dhabi and to the nations. For your name's sake, not for our own. And we pray these things for your kingdom's sake, in the name of your son Jesus our Savior, and our love. Amen. This morning, we're going to partake of communion. So I'm going to ask the men who are going to be distributing, please come to the front. And so as they take their places, I'll just give you a little bit of information on what's going to happen. Communion is a celebration. Communion is a memorial. And so we celebrate and we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross the forgiveness that we have, that we don't deserve, that we could never earn. It's also a symbol. 